Welcome to The Spectacular Century, conversations about 19th century performance and visual culture. I'm Kate Holmes, I'm a performance historian based out of the University of Exeter. I'm Jim Davis and I'm a theatre historian based at the University of Warwick. I'm Kate Newey, I'm a theatre historian at the University of Exeter. I'm Patricia Smith and I'm an art historian working at the University of Warwick. And we're part of an AHRC project working on theatre and visual culture in the long 19th century. Today I'm at the University of Bristol Theatre Collection and I'm talking with Joe Ellsworth and Athene Bain of the collection and Catherine Heinsen who is a professor in the theatre department. Talking about the collections today reveals how engaged audiences were in the 19th century. This week we're on the road for our final podcast of this series. We're at the University of Bristol Theatre Collection and I'm joined by Joe Ellsworth, Athene Bain and Catherine Heinsen. It would be great if you could just introduce yourselves to our listeners please. I'm Joe Ellsworth, I'm the director of the Theatre Collection. I'm Athene Bain, I'm the archive assistant at the Theatre Collection. I'm Catherine Heinsen. I'm a professor of theatre history based at the University of Bristol. I'm really delighted to be here because it's the first archive that I visited when doing my MA at Bristol. It would be great if you could tell some of our listeners a little bit about the theatre collection and how it came into being. We came into being in 1951. We've grown a lot since then. We're actually an accredited museum and an accredited archive service. Collections which tell the story of the history of British theatre and live art across the centuries. How We Came Into Being is a really interesting story. In 1947, Glyn Wickham had established the first ever drama department in the UK, and soon after establishing that drama department, he realised he needed to collect original resources in order to teach the subject and frame the research. So we were there, formed in 1951, right at the beginning of drama as an academic subject, and we've really followed and tracked the, the discipline as it's developed for the last 75 years. If somebody came to visit, what would they find in terms of materials in the theatre collection? I mean, the materials that we typically collect are there to show all aspects of an ephemeral art form. So we want to collect everything around what goes on in the theatre, whether that's in a building or outside of a building. For example, within our collections, we might have prompt books, press cuttings, photographs, plots, scores, costume designs, set designs, architectural plans. Probably worth saying we're really interested in the how and the why, not just the who, what, where and when. And so our collections are a little, I always think it's a bit like a jigsaw puzzle, taking lots of different pieces, all those things that Athene mentioned, and putting them together to try and get a fuller picture. When you use the word ephemeral, by that you really mean because it's put on in a 3D space with performers and setting, that it's not quite as easy to capture maybe in words. So that that leads to a different type of resource, does it? Yeah, yeah, I think it does. You know, if you have a production happening in the mid-19th century, we we are going to have photographs of it, but we're not necessarily going to have, I don't know, Anything else which can give us a particularly firm view of what it would be like to sit in the theatre and be experiencing whatever the production is. So by collecting all these materials that come around it from the creative process to the the business records of the theatre as well as those which relate to audience members, then you start to build up a sort of 3D, 4D almost picture of what an, an experience which doesn't exist anymore would have been like. I guess that's the real challenge, isn't it? We care for an art form that exists in the moment of its happening and is then gone. And how do you collect around that to 
try and help people understand that moment. My awareness of what's in the collection, that means that you have what some people might think of slightly random items, such as a cannonball from the Bristol Old Vic, uh, which was used for, for scenery, was it? That, is that... Yeah, the alleged cannonball. The alleged cannonball. <laughs> um, is actually a counterweight from the flies in Bristol Old Vic. Everybody calls it the cannonball, that's how it came to us. It's not actually a cannonball, don't want to disappoint you. Uh, but the, the, it, it kind of relates to the history of Bristol as a, a port and people going, oh, it looks like a cannonball, that's what it must be. But it wasn't, it was designed to be a, a counterweight. Mm. But we can only understand that when we look at the documents and when we look at the uh, architectural drawings and everything else, yeah. A great uh, example of where it all sort of intersects all of the different types of materials that you actually have. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. I think some people might also be surprised that there are quite a lot of paintings in the collection as well. I'd be quite interested to know why those were collected in particular. Do we know? Or It's quite an interesting question. Some of those paintings will come from individual people's archives, and it might be character portraits, for example. So Herbert Beerbone Tree in character, quite a lot of those kind of oil, oil paintings. Uh, watercolours, some of those paintings would give us a particular indication of a place at a moment in time so we would have collected it for those reasons a lot of our artworks, I would say 99% of our artworks are designs so watercolour works, set designs, costume designs, things that are the nuts and bolts of making theatre rather than our paintings which seem to celebrate the end point of a production or a person's career. It's really fascinating when sort of we talk about theatre in this context, what, what is actually covered by theatre in the 19th century in terms of what's in the holdings? I think the, the richness and the wealth of the theatre collection here is the spread of materials. So you have a, a set of collections that really reflect the sorts of performance and entertainment audiences were going to see in the 19th century. And I think we maybe all come through school and have a very set idea of what theatre might be, the sort of plays that were important or valuable. You know, we study Shakespeare. And, but actually, the, the vast majority of audiences during this period, during what we might call the long 19th century, so we kind of grab a bit more and go up to 1914, they were seeing performances that might not be documented. There might not be a script. They might have had loads of song and dance and music and fantastic spectacles. And this will come as no surprise to you, Kate, and, and the rest of the project. But I think being able to track that through holdings is the real wealth of the theatre collection. And that comes from sort of looking across collections that were put together by different collectors throughout history uh, and trying to put together those jigsaw pieces of costume designs and set boxes and programmes, actors' letters to each other about the roles they were playing and how well they'd done or not in those parts. So I think that the spread across musicals, circuses, theatres, outdoor performance in other venues, you know, very early forms of site-specific performance is the real richness of the collection here for me. Yeah, I mean, I, I would definitely agree with that. It's um, obviously, it's all, a lot of my interests are, are all in the collection, which is very exciting for me. Having had the kind of contact that you've had in different ways, either through you know, handling and caring for the collection or using it in teaching and research, I'm just wondering what your impression of 19th century theatre and visual culture actually is from these particular holdings. And my overarching impression, I guess, comes from a very small part of our collection, which is the tinsel prints. And I get an impression of something that is really vibrant and alive and fun and accessible. And the fact that people would go and see these shows and then want to make their own version of that visual image of what they've seen. 
and how they captured that. So I think that's one of the impressions you get. The 19th century theatre was very alive, very vibrant and not dry. Could you just explain what a tinsel print is? So a tinsel print is a an engraving, reasonably high levels of production, so not one-off images. And you could go, if you went to see a show, you could go afterwards and you could buy yourself this picture, kind of smaller than A4, of a particular character in the show that typifies an aspect of the storyline and what made tinsel print so special is you would buy this black and white image penny plain or you could buy it colored tuppence colored or you could go the whole hog and you could get tinsel print and you would decorate it and put tinsel ornamentation on it you would put foil parts you could embellish it with all sorts of sort of basically shiny objects so that's that's a tinsel print not many survive because they were very, again, very ephemeral objects. It's kind of, I, I guess, and I'll check in with Catherine, it's kind of fan culture yeah, no, in the I 19th century. It really is early fan culture, and I think the fascinating thing about them is they give us some insight into that moment of engagement between an audience and something that's happening. And, you know, as a theatre historian, and I think actually as a historian more generally, that moment of connect between an event and the people who experience that event is the really elusive thing that you're constantly trying to pin down. And to have objects like tinsel prints that are a moment of physical engagement between what happened, the person who saw it, and the person who's trying to somehow put down or capture some of it. It's like fancy scrapbooking, really, on a character. We can't rely on them for clear evidence. Obviously, they might not have had the right colour. They might have decided to change something. But they do give us a moment, a sense of the spectacle that was going on. And also that dynamic engagement between a performer and a spectator. You know, someone who wanted to have a picture of their favourite star and, and to kind of tinsel it and to either put it up on a wall or to include it in a book of other tinsels that they might have done. I think that's what's really important about them. They're not scripts, they're not prompt books, they're not costume designs, but arguably they can tell us as much about a performance as any of those things. And I think that that idea of the audience being very much active is something that's, you know, we, we as a team have been very interested in, but I think it's come through quite a lot on the podcasts. Athene, do you have any, any particular impressions? I don't know. I was just going to pick up on the word spectacle. My perception of 19th century theatre, not coming from a theatre history background at all. Before I worked here, I was a theatre girl, but I didn't know a lot at all about 19th century theatre. And I know we've mentioned Herbert Beerbaintree a few times, but... I'm completely obsessed with the character portraits of him and the you know photographs that we have of his productions as well because I had no idea the sheer number of bodies that he would put onto a stage in one go or you know the the extent he would go to with the costumes and the lighting and everything and it just must have been this extremely like electrifying experience to being in that space with so many people down to having, you know, very young cast members, you know, having children running around the stage, which is just, yeah, spectacle, and it's fun. Like, it feels like real fun entertainment. There doesn't feel like there's any kind of, I don't know, gesturing going on towards wanting to go and see something which is very serious or, you know, wanting to... I don't know what the word is, but just, like, going to the theatre for sheer enjoyment and fun and spectacle and completely removing yourself from your everyday life by you know being transported to another world in the way that film and moving image did for the 20th century 
that's that's my impression of 19th century theatre. I would love to have been at that Midsummer Night's Dream when Beardo and Tree put all the rabbits <laughs> over the stage. Yeah, it must have been bonkers. It's crazy. Yeah. Wonderful. Amazing. So, Beerbohm Tree, when was he exactly working? That's a really evil question. <laughs> Sorry. I, I, I think it's from about the 1880s. 1890s. So, yeah, he's yeah. working in the first couple, last couple of decades of the 19th century through to the early 20th century. And he's interesting because he's sort of a theatrical superstar. He's, he's controlling a theatre. He's programming that theatre full of plays with great parts for him as a lead. But he's really generating spectacle. And he's interesting as well because he is sort of experimenting with other theatre at the same time. So he does a series of matinees where he's staging more experimental works, works which often students come into the department thinking kind of dominated the 19th century. So plays by Henry Gibson, for example. You have to gently disenfranchise the idea that actually everyone was watching Ibsen. Virtually no one watched Ibsen in the 19th century, but it, it was very much a readerly text. But Beerbohm Tree is, is kind of playing with these new dramas as well. At the same time, he's sort of operating in, in different spheres and he does have a certain kind of magnetism to him, I think. I've always been intrigued by the number of students who sort of half fall in love with Herbert <laughs> from now. And, and kind of, I had one student for years who would only call him Herbert, would not call him Bibbam Tree. <laughs> so there is something very interesting about him, I think, as a figure and a character within mm. the 19th century theatre industry. I think he dominated culture and society in many ways, probably only competing with Henry Irving for most of his career. They said, there's that lovely quote, London was not itself when Herbert, when he was away. And that just shows how incredibly embedded in culture and society he was beyond just theatre or literature. So in terms of that experience of teaching and caring for the collections as well, what has that really taught you about the collection itself? using archival holdings from around Henry Irving's production of The Bells in teaching melodrama, which I've done for several years. And the first time I used that material was probably one of the most extraordinary moments of a 25-year teaching career, which was letting students ring the bells. So they'd read the play and we'd done some workshopping and we'd played with bits of the text and we'd looked at some of the reports on the fantastic spectacle that Irving staged in that production at the Lyceum in 1871. And then we got the stuff out <laughs> and we looked at the stuff that the theatre collection held in relation to that production. And so there's the money purse that Henry Irving wears in his, his role as Matthias. And there's also the bells that are used to make the noise of the Polish Jew reputedly kind of returning from the grave to haunt the lead character who was responsible for his murder. And I will always remember a student looking at me and going, can I touch them? And I went, yeah, go on, ring them. And she rang them and then she just squealed and the whole room went quiet. And I just felt that moment of just somehow recreating the sound, recreating the noise, really brought the kind of sensory experience of making that show and watching that show back into the room. And I've done it every time I've taught that play since. And it, it never fails. All the stuff that they touch, it's that, it's the noise, it's the sound. It's capturing that moment that, that brings it to life. So there's that real sense of connection through the material objects and that kind of that noise in particular. So kind of going beyond maybe just touch as a sensation, but sound to a sensation that has real power in those sort of teaching experiences then. Absolutely, because sometimes the hardest things to do, I mean, but undergraduate students don't come here a lot of the time and go, woohoo, theatre history. <laughs> you know, they're interested in making theatre and doing theatre. But if you can bring people closer to the making of theatre in the past and to help them understand what those people were doing creatively and why and where, 
then that's when you can help people to understand why it's important we understand that, to understand theatre now. So for me, that's really valuable. Are there any other particular modules that you found the archive particularly useful for and having that connection between the university and the archive here? Yeah, I, th- I think for me, so, uh, gosh, a long time ago, probably 10 years ago, I redeveloped a unit called Performing the Archive, which had kind of, uh, it was, it, it originated as a, a, a module that looked at live art and live art performance, but that's not really what I do. Um, so I was given this unit and I decided I'd quite like to look at the history of Bristol Old Vic within the unit, looking at the Bristol Old Vic archives, both at Bristol Records Office and here. And to give those to students and ask them to tell stories about the theatre. And so the students went away and they looked at holdings and they looked at documents and they created a piece of performance, very short, very rough, that was performed at Bristol Old Vic that told stories about the theatre's past and the theatre's history. And this was before the theatre was redeveloped and told some of those stories brilliantly itself. And for me, that was really exciting. I was really fascinated by how students went off in completely different directions and wanted to tell stories about the people and the places and the performances that the theatre had held throughout its history, including many of those surrounding my favourite, Sarah McCready, who was a phenomenal actress manager of the early 19th century. Which is really interesting as well, because I know that that's something that you've been very keen to champion, Joe, is the using of the archive to actually inspire contemporary work. Yeah, I think it's so important for us that the archive isn't just a tool to look back into the past and understand the past, but it's a way of understanding how we got to where we are now, and really, really importantly, being a catalyst and a springboard for new ideas of thinking about performance and creative activity in the future. And it's often that bringing together of creative practitioners and academics and members of the public that just spark new ideas for new work. Theeny's probably got examples from in the reading room where you see people being inspired, so the archive being something that inspires as well as informs people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, performing the archive is the one that always comes to mind because it's in my role where I'm, I'm helping students physically understand the material whilst trying to make sure that they're looking after it really carefully. You get to see those little moments of a spark of interest in something and sometimes that might be the fact that they suddenly have a moment where they're like, well, I'm touching something that this person touched and I'm suddenly having a sense of maybe all the people in between me and the first person who wrote this document or touched this document having it. And then seeing something either from reading it or pulling it out from a visual image where they suddenly all kind of, yeah, start to bounce ideas off each other about how, how do we interpret this information into something new? What can we you know, build and create, which is taking something which is extremely interesting but, but distant and then making something which is fun and present and now. And it's just very exciting for students. Returning to some of the specific holdings, I was just wondering, what is the weirdest 19th century object you hold? I don't know. It's quite a difficult question. It's hard to say weird because archives, in a sense, everything in the archives are kind of weird to somebody mm. in some way. So, like you know, there's there's probably a ton of hair in our collection because that's typically oh, yes, what does wigs. end up in archives. Yeah, so we've got wigs, which are very strange. There's sort of a kind of, yeah, surreal, uncanny thing about them. I don't know whether they're made out of human hair or whether it's more like horse hair or something else, but they're, they are weird. They're really weird objects. 
they're fun, but they're weird. I think there's something about the wigs, isn't there, that's that connection with people being other people. Maybe that's what makes them feel... I think that's the uncanniness odd, of them. The uncanniness yeah. of them. Yeah. And then there's the moustaches, sideboards and those hair pieces. I think sometimes some of the weirdness is in looking at what's gone in to make something. So we discovered the Dodgers, Artful Dodgers breeches in the Eric Jones Evans bequest. And we didn't know they were there. They were all folded up. And when we unpacked them and looked at them, and we can see how they've been artificially aged and how patches have been put into them and worn out areas. But then somebody looked at them and got so excited because she said, I understand now how men's trousers used to do up. And for her as a costumier, that was like the bee's knees. For us, it would have been nothing. But so there's all sorts of ways into the archive and there's all sorts of ways out. So I'm going to take a slightly different spin on weird because I can't think of a kind of typically weird object, but I can think of objects that have had a weird impact on me. And I think that's something we don't talk about a lot as people who work in archives, is the human connection across time between the object and the researcher. And the number of times I've found myself in tears in archives, because you're reading correspondence or looking at stuff that actually is about an intensely personal moment that has been saved accidentally or deliberately through the collecting of a wider collection. And for me, it's always most powerful in women's stories, reading about women's struggles around childbirth or child loss or miscarriage. For students, I think they find the connection between themselves and the past and things they recognise weird. I don't think they expect to find the same dynamics going on 100, 120 years ago. So I taught Trilby, which was another Bibham Tree production, in this academic year. Uh, it was a phenomenal best-selling show. It was absolutely extraordinary. It had a whole merchandise culture around it. You could buy hats, ice cream moulds. You could go to a Trilby tea party, a Trilby script reading. We live with the Trilby hat still today. And the students were fascinated and quite fixated on this kind of industry around the production that they recognised there's comes in a slightly different format in different ways across multimedia channels and um, and that sort of social media engagement perhaps more so now but they could recognize what was going on between this play this performer and their audience and they very much saw themselves in the corner of the audience and I think they found that weird I think they found it weird that all of a sudden they were having this kind of moment of connection with something that had happened a good 100 years ago and they could see what was happening and I think that's really important. I think those moments of weirdness are something we have to find and cultivate uh, to get people engaged with and excited by the archive. And we see it on products as well, like, you know, Who Do You Think You Are and all of those kind of TV programmes. They're all about fixating on that moment of connect. So that's my weird. A, a, a similar question is, what is your favourite 19th century object? For me, it's got to be the tinsel prints. It's got to be the way they tell those stories in mm. such fun ways and I also love them because we've had artists come in and respond to them and make their own contemporary version of their modern day icon so I love the fact that they're despite being nearly 200 years old they're still inspiring new work today. I'm going to be a bit cheeky mine is right at the end of your period but the object itself will be older but the desk that belonged to Lillian Bayliss which we have sort of tucked tucked away in the corner along with her chair that went with it of our library so it's just tucked around the corner there and a few years ago we had a great exhibition the same year as the women's 100 where we had an academic come in and pull out items from our collection about Lillian Bayliss and Emma Cons and Edith Craig and they had a little installation in the desk of photographs of those women some of the records of what they were doing in theatre you know in the end of the 19th century early 20th century I, I love it because it's not a typical archivey object 
it's a it's a big heavy wooden dark wood desk with a glass sheet on the top you know like a, a lawyer's desk Part, it's a partner's desk a partner's yeah, desk yeah, yeah. but yeah. I love that as well because also it's not out of bounds if someone wanted to come and sit in that chair and read a book on that table that Lillian Bayless did her you know financial records or whatever that she was doing when she was the manager of the theatre then they totally could and that would be absolutely fine and there's something very nice about that just being able to sit in the position that someone else that and it. and which which theatre because people will oh know sorry the London Old Vic Theatre mm. it might not have been called that at the time was it called, it was called the Old Vic it was called the Old Vic yeah my first would be the Herbert Bibb and Tree Correspondence, which is treating, cheating a bit because that's thousands of objects. But <laughs> I love the family archive. I love the letters from and to Maud and the children. I love the day-to-day life that's captured in that. I love seeing the receipts for how they redecorated their hall alongside the kind of letters to their friends who are artists and writers and designers. I love learning more about the educated women behind that family who made things happen for the Bibb and Tree dynasty as much as for Herbert Bibham Tree. I suppose the other thing in relation to my favourite object, and again, it's a slightly evasive answer, is the thing I wasn't expecting. And for me, I often find that in the Mandra Mitchinson collection. So I was um, doing some work on the relationship between charity activity and the theatre a few years ago. And it's quite hard to find sometimes the evidence of that activity because it was sort of designed to be hidden in many ways, all the work behind it. That wasn't the point. The point was the performance of it. And I went into the Mandra Mitchinson collection thinking I would probably not find very much and just found absolutely buckets of material (laughs) that referenced all these work people were doing just across files and folders, not in one place, but just by kind of looking and hunting down and pulling stuff out. So for me, it's that moment of going, I didn't expect to find that. And there it is. And it changes the story. It changes your understanding each time. And that, for me, is my favourite object. The one that, for me, is constantly reminding me I need to change my story. Thinking about the Mandra Mitchinson, I'm sort of aware that we haven't really talked about the role of regional theatre in the collection. And that's something that's a real strength in Mandra Mitchinson, isn't it? I suppose we've, we've alluded to it slightly because of talking about Bristol Old Vic. But I wonder if you've got anything to say about that in particular. I suppose it's just really picking up on Catherine's point about those points of departure and the breadth of the material within the Mandra Mitchinson. And you have to remember this is a huge collection. The reference box collection alone is 1,496 boxes. It's about half a million bits of paper. So, And it covers pretty much every, every significant regional theatre in Great Britain, as well as all the London theatres. And the story that tells that otherwise would probably have been lost forever, those pieces of paper, those ephemera, the little playbills, the tiny little tiny scraps of press cuttings all of these things that when combined together can take people on their own journey of discovery of a particular actor or a particular place or a particular play yeah I just love how idiosyncratic it is just love how it's completely random you open up one of the you know acid free folders that's packaged in and you have out you you think you know what you're going to find you think yes there'll be newspaper cuttings and programs depending on what period of time you're in, maybe some illustration or an engraving or even a photograph. But then you find something completely weird in there, like a, like a, like a handwritten letter to an actor or um, you know, as an audience member to a friend or a programme that's been annotated in a really beautiful way, which gives you an extra kind of dimension to what it is that you're researching. 
or you might find nothing. Like it's just completely random and there's something really fun in the, yeah, the idiosyncrasy, the little moments of serendipity, finding random, cool, exciting objects, or yeah, finding nothing, <laughs> which is quite, I think that's equally as fun. Um, I have to admit, I often feel, find that as a frustration, but maybe I'm just not quite as patient uh, yeah. as you. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm saying this as someone that works here, yeah. whereas <laughs> I know talking to researchers, they may not find the idiosyncrasies as charming as I find them. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's a note, note to be a bit more patient as a researcher, maybe, from my point of view. <laughs> One of our interests in the project, and I think we've covered this fairly well, is in audiences themselves. And I wonder if there's anything else you think that these materials reveal. I think they make us remember they were there. And that sounds like a really obvious thing to say, but it's quite easy to forget if you approach theatre in history as something that was captured in the script. So you can get very focused on a script and the stage directors and you can find things out about the performers and the actors. And sometimes it's easy for it to slip your mind that the only reason any of this stuff happened is because hundreds or thousands of people were sitting in front of it watching it. And in the case of 19th century theatre, sometimes for hundreds of nights in a row at matinee performances or sometimes in New York, you know, where it was transferred on tour or around the country where it's transferred on tour. And so I think... The key thing they do is just make us go, oh, okay, why do people want to watch this? What was it about this that was engaging and exciting and tempting? What was it that made people go and talk to their friends or sing the songs from the show on the streets after the production? And I think if that's your starting point, if you just remember they're there, then we can do a lot with that. Before we finish up, I just wanted to ask, if someone wanted to visit the University of Bristol Theatre Collection either as a member of the general public or wanted to come for research, how do they access the wonderful resources that are here? I might let Adini answer that because Adini is always the first point of contact for anyone <laughs> visiting the theatre collection. It's yeah. prob- probably worth saying that we treat everybody the same. So if you're a member of the general public, you're equally as welcome as if you're an yeah. you know, international scholar or a renowned theatre director. So everybody's treated the same and everybody's first encounter with the theatre collection is probably through Athene. Yeah, that's basically it. I mean, we are open Tuesday to Friday, 9.30 until 5. I am here during those hours to help people. So, yes, they can come to our front door, ring the buzzer, I'll come and let them in and talk to them about whatever it is that they're interested in. And sometimes that's just giving people just the starters of information of who we are or it might be sitting down with someone and having a discussion about their research interests and then looking through the catalogue and beginning to pull out references and items that they would like to have a look at within our reading room. Or, you know, dealing with me via phone or email, finding a time for them to come in. We don't have an appointment system. We find it very helpful for people to get in touch with us with a few days' notice so that we have enough time to get everything out for people in advance of their arrival because the collections are so enormous. And also we store quite a lot of our material across two different sites so to avoid disappointment great to be in touch first but people are welcome just to come to our front doors and say to us what what you do and it's worth saying you often do have exhibitions on so and we do yeah so we've got two small exhibition rooms on our ground floor where we have kind of a rolling program of exhibitions throughout the year three or four we have a exhibition by University of Bristol History of Art Master's Students, which is going to be opening next.
that just leaves me to say thank you very much, Joe, Athene and Catherine. I'm really, really glad that uh, we've been able to have this conversation. This podcast is supported by the University of Exeter Drama Department and the Arts and Humanities Research Council.